Hello and welcome to the Mile End Institute podcast, which is coming to you from Queen Mary University of London. I'm Dr Anna McGridge, a visiting research fellow at the Mile End Institute, and in today's episode we will be discussing The Politics of Women's Suffrage, a new edited collection that serves as a reminder of the ways in which women have encountered and battled a hostile political climate and pushed forward with determination, skill, tenacity and optimism. We are absolutely delighted to be joined by three expert guests. Dr Lindsay Jenkins is a historian of women, politics and activism. She joined Queen Mary University of London in September 2021 and is Deputy Director of the Mile End Institute. She is currently working on a history of the women MPs elected to represent the Labour Party between 1945 and 1979. Her latest book, Sisters and Sisterhood, The Kenny Family, Class and Suffrage, was released in November. She is the co-editor of The Politics of Women's Suffrage alongside Alexandra Hughes-Johnson. Dr Alexandra Hughes-Johnson is a historian of women and political activism. She is a research associate at the University of Oxford and a research portfolio manager at the Economic and Social Research Council. And she is the co-editor of The Politics of Women's Suffrage alongside Lindsay. We're also joined by Dr Kate Connolly, who is a historian, writer and lecturer working on the history of Britain and France in the 19th and 20th centuries. Kate has edited and introduced Sylvia Pankhurst's manuscript about North America, published under the title A Suffragette in America, Reflections on Prisoners, Pickets and Political Change by Pluto Press in 2019. I wondered, Alex and Lindsay, if you might sort of speak to the book itself and how it came about. Really, I suppose we should start with the 2018 suffrage centenary. So the 2018 commemoration of the centenary of the Representation of the People Act generated huge public interest in the suffrage movement. It prompted a range of events and activities across the countries, which many of us attended from conferences to plays to exhibitions and statues. And I think all of these things not only generate interest, but also provided opportunities for historians, um, I suppose, across the country to reflect on the women's suffrage movement, its meaning, its impact and its legacy more generally. One of the many events that offered a space for this type of reflection was an international suffrage conference organised by myself, Lindsay Jenkins and Professor Senia Pesetta at the University of Oxford. And as a consequence of that conference, the calibre of papers presented, which challenged disciplinary and geographic boundaries, that was really where I think the book started to come from. But also I think the context in which this book came about is also really important. The 2018 commemorations took place against quite a turbulent political backdrop where questions about gendered power experience and exploitation were very visible and exemplified by the Me Too and Time's Up campaigns and ranged from concerns about period poverty to the status of women housed at Yarlswood alongside a recognition of the disproportionate impact of austerity on women. And in the years since then, whilst myself, Lindsay and all of our incredible contributors are writing our chapters, gender inequalities only seem to be exacerbated with the emergence of COVID-19, with kind of the economic impact and caring responsibilities disproportionately falling upon women um, and women struggling across the globe to access um, safe and essential health care and domestic violence, for example, dramatically increasing. I think in such a context of this, an edited volume like ours is hopefully an opportunity to serve as a reminder of the power of women's voices as a collective across generations and ultimately the power of the collective and the need for long-term commitment to structural change within that. We were already seeing a change in the kinds of suffrage histories that are being written since the sort of centenary celebrations and I think this book too also sort of marks a shift in the sort of historiography of the suffrage movement. One of the things that we were very conscious of is almost the kind of explosion of interest in this area um, and particularly among younger women uh, and younger scholars 
Um, not least in part because suffrage history is often studied in schools now, and it's kind of often the first way in which people are introduced to the idea of, of women's history, and a lot of people can then take that interest forward. And of course, with the centenary, that um, you know gave a kind of milestone. It attracted not only scholarly interest, but interest from um, outside the academy, from uh, grassroots organisations looking to um, commemorate uh, local activists to people who are kind of invoking the notions of of suffrage and suffragettes in their in their political campaigns. We wanted to ensure that we had a scholarly legacy from the conference and from our own work. And one of the things that we were particularly looking to achieve it was a dialogue between generations of historians. And that's something we've hopefully achieved within the book in that we consciously have sought out early career historians bringing new ideas and perspectives together with established historians who have a kind of um, been immersed in this field and in the study of women's politics um, for decades in some cases. And that kind of um, sense of a conversation between scholars is something that you can really only get in an edited collection. And the edited collection has a particular role within suffrage historiography. It's really often driven the debate forward. It's been edited collections which have situated British suffrage history within its broader imperial and global context. It's allowed for the investigation of particular dimensions of the campaign, whether that's um, the role of men or legacies of suffrage, um, or in a more recent book, Suffrage in the Arts. I suppose it was all that that we were we were trying to capture, as well as kind of refocusing attention on the political. Uh, dimension of the campaign, we felt that um, there has been such a great advance in cultural and social understandings of suffrage, but we wanted to bring it back to the ways in which um, women were pursuing a political demand within political structures and organisations and thinking about how not only they navigate through those um, structures and organisations, but also kind of seek to to transform them from the inside out. Lindsay, your your piece focuses on um, sort of class feminism and local politics in the Canning Town branch of the Women's Social and Political Unions of the WSPU established by uh, Emmeline and Christabel Pankhurst. Can you tell us a little bit more about how this specific branch in Canning Town sort of came into being? Who were some of the leading members? This is uh, the first branch of the Women's Social and Political Union, which is founded outside of London. And there's a very famous story, which is often repeated, that Annie Kenny, who was a leading figure in the WSPU, was sent to the capital with £2 in her pocket to rouse London. And in the WSPU's account, she's sort of starting from scratch, as it were, and all these women in the East End of London sort of flock to her and are really inspired by her presence. And, you know, it galvanises a a generation of women in London. But actually, what's really interesting is in this particular case, we actually have the minute book of the branch itself, which is actually incredibly rare in suffrage history um, because so many of the WSPU's um, branch records and national records were lost and destroyed. And when you look at the minute book itself, it tells a very different story of the branch and its work. So what it shows is Annie Kenny entering into community which is already politicised and it, and forming a branch of the WSPU gives them a sort of new structure and space to pursue their pre-existing political interests and goals. You know, there's often a kind of divide very famously put by Sandra Stanley Holton about the, di- the difference between the suffrage act and the average woman. Um, and Canning Town gives us some insight into these um, these local members who never achieve any, any degree of national prominence. So reading the minute book, including um, which includes membership lists 
of the organization alongside the census enabled me to find out a lot more about the women who joined, the work they did and the lives they led. And for me, maybe the most um, striking point, which is really hard to get out of my head, is that, for example, there are seven women members. And in the 1911 census, we can see that between them, these seven women had had 58 children and 20 of them had died. Those statistics, you know, they give you such a sense of, you know, the profound loss, the uh, labour that that would have involved and what it you know must have been like for these women to be raising these really large families characterized by such high infant mortality in these very overcrowded um, and demanding conditions. Can you sort of talk a little bit more about the kinds of political activism that the, the sort of politics that they had been doing um, before and perhaps alongside their work in the women's social and political union branch in Canning Town? The main concern within Kenningtown is about the women's rights as workers. These women see themselves as a need of employment and they want to use the vote um, to help themselves secure work and to ensure that work is well paid and in um, you know appropriate working conditions. So if I just quote Adelaide Knight for you for a moment, she says, we want honest, respectable, decent conditions for the workers of both sexes, whether in work or out. For if the government won't provide work for a man or woman, they have a duty to support him or her. And this is, you know, a really um, important uh, dynamic within labor women's politics in that they don't necessarily want to be subordinate or adopt a kind of male breadwinner model of family life they they want to work they want to be in paid work i think it's also really important that they use the branch itself as a way of gaining political skills and knowledge um, and preparing themselves for the duties of citizenship so they really use it as a place to kind of educate themselves about the political issues of the day the ways in which they might contribute to those and the kind of detailed skills that you need to be a political activist whether that's public speaking or you know taking minutes or organizing a, a demonstration and then I suppose the other key feature of their politics is an embrace of direct action so they don't necessarily talk about militancy but they very much enjoy uh, are proud to go on um, public demonstrations uh, occupy public space through protests and they're perfectly prepared to get themselves arrested they have no kind of sense of shame or guilt on the contrary they um, actively celebrate women who are arrested in service of the cause and that's not something we uh, often hear about from suffrage activists in working class communities where the emphasis is more on the obstacles which prevent them from participating in those sorts of activities uh, and here we see women doing it regardless of those obstacles. What do we know, firstly, about why the branch sort of fizzles out around around 1907? And, and secondly, what happens to its leading members after this point? What do they go on to, to do? Well, there are a number of reasons for the um, collapse of the branch, which partly relate to kind of differing political vision about how the vote might be achieved, and particularly in terms of focusing on adult suffrage versus women's suffrage, and also about uh, increasing tension with with the uh, national organisation of the WSPU. I suppose for me, the uh, interest is not so much in why it comes to an end as, as you suggest, what these women go on to do. And for me, understanding Canning Town 
is a way into helping us to kind of create a longer history of not only suffrage activism, but women's activism more widely in East London. A number of women who are involved in the Canning Town branch go on to be um, actively involved in the East London Federation. Again, it's not that when Annie Kenny comes to East London that we see the Canning Town branch emerging, nor is it when we see Sylvia Pankhurst coming to East London that we see the East London Federation um, emerging, that these leading figures are rather tapping into and able to capitalise on existing politicised women um, who are you know, interested in, engaged in, thinking about political activity it sort of changes the narrative about how we see suffrage history from um, being led by significant women to kind of a grassroots account. This would perhaps be a really good time to bring uh, Kate in because Kate, your chapter um, considers the East London Federation of uh, Suffragettes and particularly Sylvia Pankhurst's role uh, within this, um, sort of looking at the kind of wider transnational contemporary women's movement. And I wonder, so this this sort of wider movement, is this just about women across the world fighting for the suffrage, fighting for the right to, to vote? Or are there sort of other aspects to their campaigning as well? It is more than just uh, women in different countries finding common cause in in the same struggle, the specific relationship that I'm looking at, Sylvia Pankhurst going to North America. And indeed, of course, one of the dynamics in in the United States is that women do have the right to vote in in some states. So that's also a point of interest for Sylvia Pankhurst. But yes, I think there is more than just sort of united campaigning for the, the suffrage. Specifically, I think it's about the question of labour rights and how this relates to the question of of suffrage and political representation for Sylvia Pankhurst. When Sylvia Pankhurst goes to North America, it's at a moment when she feels very acutely her divided loyalties between the WSPU, who are um, very keen to distance themselves from the Labour Party and the Labour movement, on the other hand, there's quite a, a level of hostility from sections of the, the Labour Party, uh, Labour Labour and Socialist movements, both sides of the Atlantic, to prioritising women's suffrage, particularly in Britain over the question of, of adult suffrage. What kind of prompted my chapter was the work that I'd done to bring to publication a manuscript that Sylvia Pankhurst had written about America. And the first draft of this manuscript, in a way, or some of the first drafts, are in letters that she sent back to Britain to Keir Hardy, uh, the Labour MP, uh, and also articles that she wrote for Keir Hardy's newspaper, The Pioneer. I think we can very much see in that Sylvia Pankhurst trying to bring together the socialist movement with with the the militant uh, women's suffrage movement. And what I think she's trying to do in all of those letters, the articles for The Pioneer, and then the book that she she never finishes about America. She's trying to grapple with an idea that she's confronted with when she goes to the United States, um, that essentially American capitalism has obviated the need for women's suffrage because uh, it has allegedly so much improved the lives of, of women. And so what she does is to explore the institutions in the United States, the sweatshops, uh, the laundries, the prisons, the schools. But she's also interested in looking at supposedly enlightened institutions and questioning them. So we see her questioning the sort of early forms of Taylorism, for example. What she's 
observing are the nature of working conditions and who gets to determine them. This is her one of the ways in which she's trying again to insist upon a fundamental link between conditions for working class women and the need for uh, political representation and a political voice. And so it's not just about making contact with suffrage activists, but also with the labour activists in the United States, many of whom were uh, were vocal supporters of, of women's suffrage as well. I wonder if you could speak more to some of these sort of specific tactics of the East London Federation of Suffragettes um, in, in the East End and how these in particular enabled uh, working class women to undertake sort of direct action for the vote. This was this was something that Sylvia Pankhurst was very keen to work out how to develop a form of militancy uh, that was inclusive and could galvanise mass support. And the most distinctive tactic that I discuss in the chapter was one they never really got to realise as an organisation, and that was the idea of the rent strike for the vote. And this was something that they were campaigning for in late 1913, early 1914, to enable working class women to take militant action. Now, obviously, rent strikes had been had been adopted in Britain before. They were very much part of the kind of political and, and social scene at the time that Sylvia Pankhurst was organising in, in what we now call the, the Great Unrest, where women were particularly involved in supporting industrial action by declaring rent strikes for the duration um, so that there wasn't an additional pressure put on um, those who were taking industrial action. What was interesting to me is that although those had taken place in East London, one of the key points of reference for the East London Federation of Suffragettes was the rent strike declared in Chicago in 1910 to 1911 during the garment workers strike there. And that was an industrial action that Sylvia Pankhurst had direct contact with. And I think we see her there drawing inspiration from the kind of tactics that she sees in the United States. What she's doing is something a bit different because whereas the rent strike had been previously used to win economic struggles, they were preparing for a a rent strike to win a political demand, which was which was something new. I was really interested about the influence of the settlement movement in the East London Federation. One of the interesting things for me was that there had obviously long been settlement houses in East London. You starting with with Toynbee Hall in in 1884, most famously, but those weren't really the ones that that were the, the models for for Sylvia Pankhurst. I don't think, um, even though she knew about those settlements, she'd been taken by her father to see the Ancoats Brotherhood when she was young. I think the influence really is is from some of the American settlements that she witnesses, in particular um, Hull House in Chicago, run by Jane Adams, and Henry Street in New York City, run by Lillian Walls. Those settlements, in particular, were more radical. And most of the the British settlements could be. They were also female dominated, um, although they were they were mixed. Those provided tremendous kind of inspiration for for Sylvia Pankhurst. I think that very often when um, historians previously have looked at what inspired her in North America, they tend to have sort of view it from the opposite perspective. It's it's seen as this very formative time where um, she critiques top-down versions of reform. What I discovered in her manuscripts was not only that, but also her seeking models of 
grassroots activism, which could which could kind of embody a sort of bottom up um, socialism. And I think she finds that in those settlement houses. That's very close to what Sylvia Pankhurst was trying to do with the suffrage movement, which was both to articulate a political demand, but also to make it tangible and relevant to the very urgent contemporary struggles that were going on around her. And I think that sort of combination that was embodied in in Hull House and Henry Street, that campaigning for and establishing playgrounds and clinics um, and spaces for for women to come was very much something that that Pankhurst wanted to emulate and and thought could be emulated in East London. Campaigning for the vote was just one part of their feminist politics. They were also campaigning for sort of welfare issues. Alex, your chapter looks at these sort of the wartime suffrage campaigns of the suffragettes of the WSPU and the independent WSPU. What's really interesting here is that the sort of the conventional narrative has perhaps been that during the First World War, the WSPU suspended all its sort of militancy and all its campaigning. So could you perhaps um, talk about these two groups a little bit and kind of how and why they continued to campaign for the vote during the war? The conventional narrative has perhaps been that during the war, the WSPU suspended all militancy and then elected to take what it saw as a patriotic stand to the conflict. But I think the foundation of the suffragettes of the WSPU and the independent WSPU by disgruntled WSPU members such as um, Rose Lamartine Yates, Mary Lee, Charlotte Marsh, who really felt that despite communications from WSPU headquarters, it was not the time to suspend their activities. And in fact, Rose Lamartine Yates, who was one of the founders of of the SWSPU, said at the time that the break in activities was deplorable because she thought that women's energies should remain on the fight for enfranchisement, whether there was a a war or not. With regard to their campaigning, I think while their approach was essentially non-militant, they were militant in their outlook. The principle of political resistance that had animated their kind of pre-war militancy remained a key feature of their wartime activism. And their activism was strategic, it was organised, and it was clearly influenced by the pre-war tax of the WSPU, but also the Women's Freedom League as well. I think it's 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 really interesting that you say they they really wanted to, in contrast with perhaps the WSPU leadership, um, keep the focus, um, keep keep their work going during um, wartime. Was this perhaps because they sort of saw the war as presenting some quote unquote opportunities to women, for example, for sort of patriotic uh, wartime work? Or, or were there other other elements that informed their, their desire to keep the campaign going during this time? It isn't clear that either organisation necessarily supported opportunities as such that the war presented. And I think, in fact, the actions of some of the SWSPU's membership hints to their kind of outright opposition to the war. There are records of women opposing the National Registration Act in 1915, which essentially paved the way for the creation of a compulsory register of men and women for war work. And some also objected to kind of forced male conscription. And Rose Lamartine Yates actually opened up the top floor of the old Wimbledon WSPU shop. Um, She was the um, organising secretary of the Wimbledon WSPU. And she offered that as a place for conscientious objectives to visit her husband, who was a solicitor for legal advice. So I don't necessarily think there was a sway towards kind of opportunities that the war presented to women. As such, the key campaign really that kind of both the SWSPU and the IWSPU were passionate about, aside obviously from um, 
the enfranchisement of women were kind of attempts to regulate women's sexuality through the Royal Commission on Venereal Disease and the Criminal Law Amendment Bill. When the Royal Commission's final report is is released, which essentially concludes that VD is like an urban phenomenon and a major threat to public health, the SWSPU actually describes the report as kind of sorry reading, it highlights its limitations, such as kind of failure to consider preventative strategies. And it challenges what they see as kind of blame and responsibility being put onto kind of the victims of all this, the women in this. So I think that maybe is kind of their more kind of key focus during this time. But actually what is incredibly interesting about their approach to kind of these different issues is that the SWSPU and IWSPU have an official position on different aspects. They oppose the final reports but actually they publish arguments on both sides in their newspapers and they open it up to members and they say to them while this is our official position if you have another viewpoint that's absolutely fine it won't impact on your association with us but just don't speak for your sisters it seems quite a step change from previous style kind of pre-war so i wonder then does that sort of um democratic approach extend um to to when we get the speakers conference um being set up by the government in late 1916 early 1917 when the government is really going to discuss and debate um who exactly should be enfranchised and there is a lot of discussion over which sort of groups of women and where this if there is going to be an age limit and, and where this age limit should fall what is the position of the the SWSPU and the IWSPU at that point and are they sort of open for debate too well the SWSPU in particular they they write about their approach to suffrage the IWSPU is a little bit different um, in the sense that they don't necessarily seem to do that in in their um, in their newspapers. Both organisations seem to be kind of passionate about partial suffrage or suffrage on the same terms or as it was granted to men, because that was something that they considered as achievable, I think. I think it was all about achievability. And the SWSPU actually say that partial suffrages are kind of alpha and omega, but they don't step away from having conversations, for example, with um, Sylvia Pankhurst with the Southern Federation of Suffragettes on adult suffrage. There's various correspondence and records that talk about these kind of meetings that, that Sylvia organised to try and kind of convince um, some of the wartime suffrage organisations to kind of support adult suffrage. But I think it was this achievability. I don't think that the SWSPU at the time felt that it was achievable to support adult suffrage because the demand relied on two distinct reforms, the acknowledgement of women as persons and the near doubling of the male electorate. And I think that was the issue. But they were kind of more than willing to have those those types of conversations in the run-up to the Speakers' Conference and during the Speakers' Conference. Something that I was thinking about that, that comes across in all of your chapters is the importance of these women's sort of personal networks, their, their friendship networks, to the campaign for the vote and the ways in which these organisations sort of overlap in their, their memberships and, and how that informs the kind of um, politics. For the wartime suffrage societies, friendship networks and existing kind of feminist communities were so key to the recruitment of membership. In fact, when I was writing the, the chapter, I traced the founding committee members of both organisations. And it's clear to see that it was through these networks that women spread the word about kind of these new suffrage organisations, brought like-minded women together, had really diverse and impactful conversations on kind of why suffrage activism should campaign and on what terms. Rose Lamartine Yates and Mary Lee, for example, were kind of clearly connected by their friendship with Emily Wilding Davison. Annie Cobden Sanderson, who was a member, was a regular speaker in Wimbledon, so would have kind of been known to, to Rose Lamartine Yates. 
and he may in turn have then reached out to other women like Mary McLeod who she knew whilst on the Women's Freedom League Executive Committee. When I think back to my own research um, on Wimbledon suffrage organisations, those friendship networks and feminist communities were key to to that membership and also to shaping women's feminist identities at the time. Identifying these networks and their importance to the suffrage activists changes the way we think about the disputes in the suffrage movement. For example, when Sylvia Pankhurst goes to East London and starts to set up the the branches of the WSPU that will eventually become the independent East London Federation. The sort of dominant historical narrative is that she was a socialist and therefore this was what she had to do, go and organise amongst working class women. But Sylvia Pankhurst was a socialist in 1907. She was a socialist in 1909. For me, the interesting question was, why was it 1912? And why did she do this alongside Zaley Emerson, an activist that she met in the United States. When we think about it from that perspective, we, we have to understand these these are activists, these are practical women who act with reference to where they're coming from ideologically. But I think for Sylvia Pankhurst, the fact that there wasn't that action before 1912 was very much related to her not having a sort of sense about what she could do practically about her divided loyalty she couldn't see what sort of practical project would bring these things together and it was it was very painful to her um i think her two lecture tours of the united states bring her into contact with women who are engaged with projects that mobilize working class women in a struggle that is in part for the suffrage, but also connected to other social issues as well. And I think I think that's an incredibly important part of why these friendships are important. For me, uh, when I start, first started looking at the Kellingtown branch, I thought, God, how have they managed to do this? Because the membership is really, really big. They've got 90 women, but they never talk about recruitment. And I couldn't work out how they'd done this until I looked at the addresses and I put them on a map. And realise that basically all of these women, they already know each other. They're all friends. They're all um, part of the same community. A lot of them live next door to each other um, or they live kind of in the flat upstairs or, or on the same street. And so, you know, suffrage is coming out of a pre-existing network. That network is based on friendship, but it's also based on community and locality and shared interests. And, you know, that, that sort of stuff, that sort of everydayness of politics um, I think is really integral to the to the suffrage movement. A really positive thing that came out of the commemorations in 2018 were the sort of the um, the establishment of new networks of women today working on women's suffrage in in academia, in the heritage sector, in the in the community um, sector, um, who were able to engage sort of different audiences in this really um, really important aspect of women's history. What do you guys think kind of worked? about the um, the 2018 uh, commemorations, obviously apart from this wonderful new book which came out of it, um, and perhaps what, what, what work can we be doing um, ahead of 2028 to build on these networks that have been established and to perhaps draw in still further uh, newer audiences? The commemoration of 1928 in 2028 is a really important opportunity for us to take this um, story forward so that the 1918 um, act isn't seen as a kind of endpoint, but as more like a staging post, um, and that it's not kind of seen as the be all and end all. But that we, um, you know, look at the intervening years and some of the achievements that were made and some of the progress that was taken, 
and also some of the areas in which women found it more difficult to make progress. Um, and I think because what happens in 1928 is that younger women get the vote, I think it'll be really interesting to see how young women respond to that in uh, 2028. What was missing for me in um, 2018 was any real sense of, I don't know, state interest in investment in democracy and citizenship and political representation in a kind of meaningful way. I felt that some of the efforts which were kind of put forward um, in terms of investing in projects were sometimes tokenistic or kind of poorly thought through. Outside of um, state initiatives, there was so much really exciting grassroots and heritage and activist energies um, and I would like to see more kind of public support and um, investment in that as a reflection of a, a real recognition of the importance of women's politics and not just as a kind of token gesture. Yes. So I think one of the things that COVID has shown us is the different ways in which we can engage with with different groups, particularly through um, the digital in our sort of post-COVID world, how we might build on this to bring in some of these different audiences is something that really sort of bears thinking about. But Kate, Alex, I'd be really interested in in your thoughts on this. It would be wonderful if we could really embrace the breadth and diversity of the British women's suffrage movement, rather than kind of a more of a focus on kind of specific individuals or organisations. I think that whilst that is fantastic, I think it would be great if the work of the kind of the historians that kind of have, have informed the way in which I myself kind of write today and kind of the work of historians in, in this edit, edited collection and the, the fantastic contributions that have come from the centenary really do inform the public narrative further so it isn't just kind of focused on for example, the WSPU, the Purple, White and Green, the D's Not Words. I think the WSPU are guilty of having fantastic branding. They were absolutely inc- incredible at that. And I think that came through with the 2018 suffrage centenary. So I hope that add kind of more breadth, diversity and nuance to the story. I'm very excited for where this discussion is is going to go ahead of 2028. I agree with Lindsay about so much of the, the limitations of the way in which 1918 was discussed by by the state and I think there's I think there's always a danger when the anniversaries that we're thinking about and I I say this with half a mind on you know having organized some suffrage events around the 1913 anniversary of of Emily Wilding Davison's death but I think there can be a danger when the anniversaries are of an act going through parliament because I think that all too easily and I think this was very much the tone of Theresa May's speech at, at the time, the story of a struggle becomes part of the story of uh, the British state becoming increasingly enlightened. And I think that that can very easily become weaponized. So I think there is a danger to it. And it becomes part of this, it becomes part of the story of the British state. Millicent Fawcett's statue is there alongside Palmerston in Parliament Square. It erases the, the rupture, it, erase, it can erase the struggle. And so one of the questions for me is how do we avoid doing that? And, and to sort of think about some of the things I thought worked. 
were, for example, I thought the National Archives put on a very interesting exhibition, the Suffragettes versus the State exhibition, which I thought was a very interesting way for for them to do it and very much kind of recognising the bias of their archive, but what that could then tell us about the relationship and the nature of the British state and its relationship with activists. I think that's a hugely urgent question for us to be asking today in the period of of spy cops, uh, when we're thinking about the level of um, police violence against women still. These, you know, are some of the things that might help us to unpick some of those questions. Likewise, I think, you know, the Sisters Uncut protest, for example, at the at the screening of, of suffragettes uh, to highlight cuts to domestic violence services. I, I thought that was something that was very much in the in the spirit of the suffragettes, but brought the conversation back to the oppression of women today. And I think that in discussing the suffragettes, that has to be what we do. I think it raises interesting questions about uh, imperialism and whether imperialism is compatible with democracy. Um, and certainly, I think we need then to be discussing um, what happens in Ireland and the relationship between uh, the suffrage movement and the movement for independence in Ireland and all of the debates around imperialism that were had inside the suffrage movement, um, at times more muted, at times very very sharply articulated. Obviously, one of the figures that I think about is is Sylvia Pankhurst. And I think about where her energies were focused by the 1920s. And of course, next year, we're just about to come up to the centenary of the, the fascist takeover of Italy. One of the things that's quite interesting to me is the way in which Sylvia Pankhurst tried to mobilize, again, we're back to the networks and friendships, but those old networks of suffragettes to really organize amongst them to sort of reclaim the suffrage movement as she saw it I suppose for an anti-fascist cause and to say that fascism was the antithesis of of everything that the struggle for democracy represented Um, and I think that's also very important at the moment as well we're seeing the rise of, of fascist parties across Europe to kind of think about that that context as well. Hopefully, I think we'll feel what we're learning from the past is still is still relevant and empowering today. That's that's what I hope anyway. What's really interesting is perhaps what comes across from what everyone has said here is to think as we look ahead to 2028 at how celebrations and commemorations can become both more sort of local and more grassroots, but also perhaps as, as you said, Kate, more sort of transnational and, and international um, as well, um, which is really nice because that takes us sort of full circle back to where we started with with the book itself and the various uh, sort of new and exciting perspectives it brings to the history of women's suffrage. So I suppose there's one final question left for me to ask. 2028, another edited collection or is this uh, is this enough for you both now? <laughs> I think for me, looking forward to 2028, I think it, it just goes back to what we've discussed about kind of the diversity of feminist activism in the last 100 years and kind of beyond that. And I'm just looking forward to kind of seeing the diversity and breadth of knowledge represented in 2028. Also kind of the diversity of feminist activism at a local level to really penetrate those kind of national narratives. Okay, so on that lovely note, I think we should draw things uh, to a close. I would like to thank all of the guests this week for their time, Kate Conley, Alexandra Hughes-Johnson and Lindsay Jenkins. And of course, thanks to all of you for listening. You can find the Mile End Institute on social media. And if you sign up to the mailing list on our website, you'll always hear first about our future events. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please do subscribe and share.